Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Um, you know, it's interesting. Pastor Cliff told me earlier in the week that he was going to be making this slide, and I was really nervous because I've seen some of the slides he makes sometimes, and I, I have really embarrassing photos on Facebook, so I'm really glad that these are the two he picked. Um, one, they're actually good pictures. Um, and the second one is because um, the picture in the background is of Aaron and I backpacking last year, and he knew that I would be sharing a backpacking story today, so I figured, you know, it was appropriate, and he didn't make it embarrassing, so that was good. Um, so to start off, a couple years ago, I was invited to go backpacking for the first time, and for those of you who don't know me, I am a city girl born and raised. I grew up in the city until I was 21, um, until I graduated college. And my idea up until that point of camping or roughing it was church camp. So we were in, you know, cabins. We had nice bunk beds. We had our warm sleeping bags. We had showers and other things, you know, right next to us, running water, um, kitchens. We had a pool. We had vending machines. We had everything. So it's really more like glamping. And that's really kind of what I knew of camping. So the idea of going backpacking was really nerve-wracking to me because I grew up, like I said, in the city. So I had access to everything, or you think you have access to everything. You think if you need clothes or food or some other items that you get in a car, you go a short distance, and you have multiple places um, to go and get what you need, and it doesn't matter what time of day or night it is. Um, But with backpacking, you have no road access, you have no car access, you have nothing, and so if you forget something, you're kind of out of luck. So I was really kind of nervous um, thinking about going on this backpacking trip a couple years ago, and Sure, it was scary to think about packing up this backpack on my back and going up this mountain, but that really wasn't what preoccupied my thoughts. Um, It was more what other girls' nightmares might be, and that's packing. I am an overpacker. I am somebody who will bring five outfits for a two-night stay because what if I'm not in the mood to wear what I picked out, you know, a week ago? And so um, that was really, you know, nerve-wracking. And so I asked a lot of my coworkers and my friends, um, what should I expect for backpacking? What should I bring? And they all told me the same thing, to just bring the essentials. Well, you're talking to an overpacking city girl that has no idea what the essentials are. I think we're going to have a kitchen, you know, a pool, vending machines. So I was really nervous, so I did what anybody else probably would do. And I looked up Google articles and YouTube videos to tell me what to expect. I followed checklists. I ended up buying a whole ton of things, which, by the way, backpacking, you think it's minimalistic and you're roughing it, and you need to buy a lot of stuff to go backpacking. Anyway, so I didn't know what the essentials were, um, and so... Um, I decided I got everything that I thought I needed. I looked at these checklists, and I put everything out on my futon. And I had a stack probably about this big of clothes for a two-night stay because I was worried about getting dirty. I was worried about getting sweaty, which now I know that that's kind of part of the deal, but I didn't know that at the time. So I was worried about that. The next thing I had packed on my futon was a whole ton of food and snacks because I was really worried about getting hungry. Um, again, you don't have road access. You don't have access to anything. In my mind, I'm thinking I'm going to eat a bug or I'm going to have to eat, you know, like something edible, some plant or some berry. And I know nothing about edible plants and berries. I'm from the city. So I was worried that I was going to end up, you know, eating something poisonous and that would be a problem. And so I ended up deciding the better option was to just pack a whole bunch more snacks. 
then the last thing I was planning on packing was all my full-sized hygiene items because I didn't know that smaller things, lightweight things actually come in handy. And I didn't learn that until after backpacking the first time. So I remember talking to Aaron. Aaron came in, who's now my husband. He was going on the trip too. And he looked at my futon and I asked him if I was even in the ballpark of what I was planning on bringing. Is this right? And I kid you not, he, I can still remember, he was laughing at me and said, well, you're the one who has to carry it all, Becca. So <laughs> suffice it to say, I did not quite understand what the essentials were and what was not. So this morning, we're going to work through a passage of scripture where these people didn't know what was essential for li- their lives either. They were so focused on what they thought they needed or really what they wanted that they weren't able to see what God was offering to them that was essential and that was going to sustain them. Um, But before we read our passage, we're going to be reading in John chapter 6 today. Um, But before we do, I'm going to give you the background of what's been happening up until this point. So Jesus has been going all throughout Galilee and through Samaria and into Judea doing amazing, incredible miracles. And as it is when anybody is doing, you know, turning water into wine and healing the sick again and again, people start to take notice. They're starting to follow him, wondering what miraculous thing he's going to do next. At the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus and his disciples, they go off by themselves. They're trying to retreat. However, this large crowd of people end up following him. And so it's not too long that they're by themselves. And as these people are coming to him, it says in the Bible that there were 5,000 men in this number. And so we could probably think that there's probably more women and children accounted for that was not in there. So you're talking about lots of people. And as they're approaching Jesus and his disciples, Jesus asks asks his disciples, Um, How are we going to feed all these people? And the disciples quickly realize, we don't have enough money to do this. And they end up finding a boy. As you guys know the story, Pastor Cliff Cliff mentioned it last week. Um, They found a boy that had five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus sat everybody on the grass. He blessed the food. They broke it. And it ended up feeding all these thousands of people till their stomachs were full. And they had 12 basketfuls left over. So I can only imagine being in the crowd and hearing the whispers of hearing all this amazing things that they're just witnessing. I mean, they are there watching Jesus do this. What ended up being this boy's mere lunch ended up feeding way more people than it is in this room. And in my mind, I can't even see how five loaves of bread and two fish would feed all of us. So it's this amazing, spectacular miracle that Jesus is doing. So Jesus, sensing that these people are going to come and take him by force and try to make him king for their own benefit, He decides to withdraw and go off by himself, something he often does in the gospel accounts, probably to pray. And when Jesus wasn't back um, by evening time, his disciples decided they were going to go on ahead of him. They were going to go towards Capernaum in a boat. And Jesus, showing his power once again to his disciples, they meet him in the middle of the sea, but Jesus isn't in a boat. Jesus is walking on water, you know, minor detail in the story. Another way he's showing that he is powerful, that even the winds and the waves obey him. So we pick up the story the next morning with, his, with the crowd not knowing where Jesus went. So we're in John chapter 6, verse 22 through 40, if you'd stand for the reading of God's word. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. 
So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As I was reading this passage, I couldn't help but imagine, what if we were part of that crowd? What if we had been there and we witnessed this incredible miracle and we got to see this and we got to benefit and partake from this miracle? Um, And then we got to have this conversation with Jesus afterwards. I wonder how we would have responded. Would we have acted the same way that the crowd did or would we have done something differently? I think that in hindsight, people say, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. so it's easy to take a step back and to look back in on the situation and say, you know, we would do something differently because you see all the parts, you see all the people, and you see all of everything that went on. But at the same time, I think we have a lot of similarities with the crowd that makes me think, what if we were there? So today, as we work through this passage, we're going to go and focus on three questions um, that we're going to ask of the crowd, but we're also going to ask these questions of ourselves this morning. So our first question is, Who are you seeking? So we pick up the story the following day, and the crowd is basically playing hide-and-seek with Jesus. And so these people from a nearby town, they come, they join in on the search too, and they've probably come because they've heard all this hype and all this amazing things that this person's doing, and probably because they wanted to get their piece of the pie too, so to speak. So the crowd at this point knows that his disciples aren't there, that Jesus didn't go with his disciples, Jesus didn't get on a boat, And now Jesus isn't where they can find him. And so they're looking for him. They're searching for him. They have no idea where he's at. And at this point, it's probably breakfast time. They're probably looking for, how can I benefit again? I want free food. I want more. How can I find him? So they load up in their boats. They embark on their journey. And they go towards the direction that they saw the disciples go. They're trying to find where Jesus is. And so when they get to Capernaum, lo and behold, they find who they're seeking 
But it wasn't the rendezvous that the crowd had in mind. I mean, think about it. The last time that the crowd was there, um, they saw Jesus, they approached him, and he gave them free tickets to a show. They got to sit back on the grass. They got to relax. They got to watch Jesus perform for them. And they got a free meal out of it too. So I can see why they went searching the next day. They wanted to see how Jesus could continue to benefit them. So they had these ideas and these expectations of what Jesus was going to do, and they basically put Jesus into a box of what they thought he was going to do, how he was going to respond, because, again, they thought only in their own selfish terms. They thought that Jesus was there for them. So when they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? And this is what verse 26 says. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So Jesus didn't bother to answer their question. Jesus knew that really the heart of the question was not when he got there, because really what they were asking is, Rabbi, how did you get here? We obviously didn't see you go in the boats the night before. We know you weren't with the disciples. We know there was no boat that left. So... When did you get here? How did you get here? Do you have some other miraculous power or other miraculous thing that can maybe benefit us later? We want to know, what did you do to get here? Um, Jesus wasn't concerned with answering this question because he knew that they would latch on to another miracle story, that they were so focused on the miracle itself that they couldn't look past the miracle. They couldn't look at the person and the power behind it instead. Sure, anybody looking for um, their own personal gain or looking to boast themselves up would talk about this miraculous journey of crossing the sea and defying gravity and the winds and the waves obeying him. But Jesus isn't looking to boast himself up here. He's not lifting, looking to lift himself up. He's looking and is concerned with the well-being in the hearts of the crowd. And he knows that that's not what they needed at the time. Instead, Jesus confronts them about why they were there. He wants to show them what their own hidden agenda was. He said, you don't want me. You're not looking for me. You only want to use me. So when we read this passage this morning, I cannot help but think to ourselves, who are we seeking? Are we seeking God, the Son of God, Jesus, who's come into this world to save us from our sins? Or are we looking for something or someone for our own personal selfish gain? A couple weeks ago, Pastor Cliff used the terms errand boy and cosmic Santa Claus to describe the things that Jesus is not. Um, It would be nice to, you know, have our own personal pocket Jesus that we can take out anytime we needed or wanted him. Um, If something was going on, we could say, Jesus, fix the situation. But Jesus doesn't work like that. We can't use Jesus. Jesus doesn't work for us like a magic genie. We can't just rub the lamp and have Jesus come out and work in the way that we want him to work, because Jesus knows what the best way to work in the situation is, and it may not be something that we are seeing. So when we put expectations like this on Jesus, when we think we know that Jesus works for us or anything like that, we fall into the trap of also putting Jesus into the, in, his, in a box. We limit our understanding of his power, our understanding of his love and his grace, But when we seek Jesus for who he is, then our our hearts and our eyes can be open to experience the overwhelming love and grace that he offers. So when we're able to be honest with ourselves of 
who we are seeking, we can move on to our next question, which is, what are you working for? So right after Jesus calls out the crowd for basically only wanting another free meal, he says this in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. When I imagine Jesus saying this to the crowd, I imagine him saying it out of love in a way that's urgently pleading with them, saying, look at me, I'm right here, I'm the real deal, I came to transform you. I don't see Jesus saying it here in this harsh tone, saying, you know, do this because I said so, and pointing the fingers. Jesus didn't come to guilt or to shame any one of us. He came because he loves us, he came, he came because he wanted to save us. He said that he can come and transform us. So I know many of you have kids or have worked with kids before, or if this doesn't describe you like me, um, you've been a kid at least at some point in your life, or maybe you're still a kid now. So you know that when we are teaching new concepts or we're trying to show something, uh, we often use a lot of repetition. We tell them over and over and over again. We also use the use of opposites. We compare things. And so if you were to go into the nursery right now, you'll find several books on opposites. They might compare light and dark, or maybe happy and sad, loud and quiet, or maybe big and tall. We use opposites all the time to illustrate differences. And here Jesus is using opposites as well because he wants to have the crowd understand a hard-to-grasp spiritual concept. Jesus shows the difference between what they are seeking, this perishable food, and what he is offering, eternal life. It's basically life without Jesus and life with Jesus. He's saying that the things you're working for, the things that you're trying so hard to grasp and hold on to, it's fleeting. It's not going to sustain. It cannot satisfy the way that you want it to. They're temporary, earthly, perishable things. But on the other hand, what Jesus is saying is he's offering things that are far much greater and bigger than what they're spending all their time on. And this is um, the food that endures to eternal life. It's a life that's a complete opposite from how they've been living. 180 degree difference. And he's saying you can have forgiveness from your creator and love and acceptance. It's life that's forever sustaining. And all you have to do is to believe in me. That's all you have to do. You don't need to work for it. You don't need to earn it. You need to just believe that I'm the one that God sent. So what do we spend all of our time working for? Are we focused on earthly things? Maybe it's money, success, social status, um, material things, or success. It can get quite exhausting to keep feeding into all these things where we're trying to grasp so hard to hold these things, but They're temporary, they're perishable, they're fleeting. It's not something that's guaranteed to last for very long at all. Instead, Jesus says he can relieve us from these things. We don't have to try to hold on to these things that are not sustaining us at all. He says, I can transform your life. You don't need to be thinking that your life's goal and your life's aim is the mundane work or the things that are happening that are earthly. Instead, Jesus is offering hope. Jesus offering hope for the future for us, peace in the midst of uncertainties, love and acceptance when we might otherwise feel overlooked or undeserving or worthless. And he's offering us true happiness. When we stop looking at the things of the earth and we focus on him, our whole lives get an upgrade, one where we're truly and genuinely satisfied. 
So you would think when the crowd heard this, they'd be like, sign me up. That's what I want. I want my life to be transformed. I want it to be different. But nope, they didn't do that. They asked Jesus for proof, as if they just forgot that they were most of them part of the crowd that just benefited from this boy's lunch, that they got these fish sandwiches, as Pastor Cliff mentioned last, or, yeah, last week, um, and they forgot about it. They couldn't see beyond you know, the perishable and the temporary earthly things. Um, so instead, they decide that they remind him of the history of their ancestors. So back in the book of Exodus, um, God calls Moses to bring his people out of Egypt. And again, you guys know this story where um, one minute the people are so ecstatic because they're no longer under Pharaoh's rule. They're not under his grasp. They're not in slavery anymore. They're not bound by anything. Yet at the same time, not too long after, they start grumbling towards Moses saying, we're hungry. Like, why did you bring us out here? They go even so far as to say, it was better to be in slavery in Egypt because at least we had food. At least we could eat. And you know what? God being the loving God he is, the gracious God, the caring God that he is, he provides for the people. He sends them bread from heaven called manna so that they can have sustenance that they can be provided for. This bread from heaven he sent every single day. So he would... um, send it to heaven, or send it from heaven, they would pick it up, they'd gather it, except on the sixth day they would have enough to gather for two days because they weren't supposed to gather any food on the Sabbath. But Jesus did this every day for 40 years. Every day the Israelites, they woke up, they knew that God was going to provide for them. They knew that they were going to go out there, and every day God provided. God proved who he was, that he was faithful, that he was going to give them what he said. And so again and again, he does this. So when, Jesus, when the crowd tells this to Jesus, he's like, whoa, you've missed the entire point. It wasn't Moses who sent this bread from heaven. It was God, my father, who sent this bread. And now he's sending the true bread from heaven. And this intrigued them. They said, give us this bread always. We want that bread. They're probably thinking, sweet, free food, just like our ancestors They're thinking, again, of the earthly, perishable, temporary benefit of physical bread. They can't get past the earthly to get into the spiritual. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is making a bold statement here by equating himself with something that was necessary for everyday living. These people would have eaten bread with almost every meal, if not every meal. And so he doesn't say at any point that he's the cheesecake of life, where, you know, you can only eat it whenever you want it, you want a treat, or, you know, it's just occasional something. He's saying, no, I am the bread of life, something that you need every day for sustenance, not just when you think you want it, not just when you need a treat. Um, he also doesn't say that he's some rich delicacy that only certain people can afford. This gift that he's offering was this radical idea that he's offering life to everyone. It didn't matter who you were, what you did, if you were Jewish or not. This life is for everyone. Jesus said he became the savior. He came to be the savior of the world. He says he's the bread of life. He's here to sustain us daily and to provide for us every day. And just as God provided faithful with the ancestors back by providing manna, he's providing faithful, proving faithful again now by providing Jesus, not only to them, but to us this morning as well. 
So a little while later in the conversation in chapter 6, Jesus says, you know, our ancestors ate the manna, and what happened to them? They died, right? Um, But now the true bread from heaven, it won't perish, nor will the people who eat of it perish. They will have everlasting life with God. It's not something that is temporary. This is forever life-giving, sustaining forever. So these people, they left their homes. They left their towns to seek after and follow Jesus. But they went through all of this just for something temporary, just for something that they could grab hold of in the physical realm. They didn't want Jesus to transform them. They didn't want their lives to look differently. They wanted Jesus instead to perform for them. So I ask again this morning, who are you working for? Are you focusing all your time and your energy on things that are earthly, things that are fleeting, things that can't sustain? Or are you focusing on God who says when we come to him that he will forever sustain us, that we will no longer hunger and thirst We don't need to put our hope in things that don't matter anymore. We don't need to put our hope in things that cannot sustain us. We can put our hope and our trust in a faithful God that proved faithful years and years ago, that proved faithful at the time of the story and is continuing to prove faithful now. So when we can be honest with ourselves about both the question of who are you seeking and what are you working for, we can ask the last question of both the crowd and ourselves, and that's what now? So if you keep reading in the um, chapter 6 in John, you find out by the end of the conversation that these people did not truly believe in Jesus. He wasn't what they wanted or what they expected, and they ended up turning their backs on the Savior of the world. They said, you know, we don't think you're essential for us. We don't need you. And they left the son who was offering life, and they didn't want it. The crowd was looking instead for a no-strings-attached performance, one where they could, you know, go, be an audience member, um, sit back, get some free food or some other free thing, something earthly to benefit them. Then they could go home and live life on their own terms and benefit themselves the way that they want. They weren't interested in being transformed. This reminds me of a story I heard a while back um, about a famous French tightrope walker called Char- named Charles Blondin, and he lived in the mid-1800s, and he was insane, I would say, but he had a tightrope about two inches in diameter, and he said that he was going to string it across Niagara Falls, and I've never been to Niagara Falls. I don't know if any of you have, but I've seen pictures of it, and it, not only is it this crazy waterfall, but it's super windy, and you're sitting there, and the mist is coming up, and people are usually wearing ponchos that go because it's crazy, and so he decides that he's going to string his tightrope 1,100 feet between the American side and the Canadian side, and so people, the newspapers and Um, whatever, they're posting all these articles and all these ads saying, come look at this person who's saying that he's going to attempt to walk across Niagara Falls. It's it's insane, you know? And 25,000 people, it shows in our reports, showed up to watch him. And I'm really kind of curious as to why they showed up. I don't know if they showed up because they were expecting to see something amazing or if they were expecting to see something utterly horrifying. I don't know, but that would kind of freak me out to watch somebody walk across this rope this big over this expanse. Um, But he makes it across the first time and everyone is cheering. They're going crazy. They're saying, oh my goodness, we believe in you. This was awesome. And he says, do you think I can do it again? And they were like, yeah, we believe, we believe. 
And so he decided to have many encore performances at Niagara Falls. And so each time he went, there was a new element of theatricality or a new element of difficulty. Sometimes he would somersault to cross, which I can't even imagine. And then sometimes he would go blindfolded. Other times he would bring heavy objects and large objects like tables and chairs. And so once he brought over a wheelbarrow and they're going nuts. They're like, wow, how can this person do this. He is amazing. He can do anything. So then he asks, do you think that I can bring somebody across in the wheelbarrow with me? And they're like, we believe, we believe you can do this. So then he says, well, who's going to volunteer then? Show of hands. (laughs) Nobody volunteers. It was silent. Um, You could probably hear a pin drop because at this point, it now means something. They're actually having to risk their lives. They're having to basically put their money where their mouth is and saying, we believed in you. We said we believed in you, but now do you really believe? Do you really trust that this person can bring you across? And nobody did. See, it's easy to say that you believe in something or someone when there's no strings attached. You know, the crowd in our story today, they were so impressed by what Jesus was doing. They left their homes and they followed him And they were trying to see what other performances they could witness. But Jesus says, I'm not looking for followers who are in it for the freebies. I'm not looking for the most Instagram followers or Facebook friends. Um, I am looking for somebody who is here to seek me, to come and find me. I came from down from heaven to save us. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans that we have all sinned, every single one of us, and that we fall short of the glory of God. And it also says that um, the wages of sin or the punishment of sin is death, that that is what we're supposed to do because we've sinned. However, that there's this free gift of eternal life, this free gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ. See, none of us can earn salvation or do anything to get ourselves to heaven, but instead, the good news is that Jesus sent his son to take that place from us, that Jesus sent, or Jesus came, God sent his son Jesus, so that we could um, no longer have to have the punishment ourselves. Jesus took that. Jesus became a sacrifice for us so that we wouldn't have to bear that burden. Um, I don't know where I'm at. Um, So anyway, um, So in our story, Jesus says that he will never cast out anyone who comes to him. So Jesus is saying, I've done this. I've come. I'm coming to offer eternal life to you. But at the same time, if anybody comes to me, I'm not going to cast them out. I'm not going to reject you. Um, It doesn't matter how undeserving you think you are. It doesn't matter how worthless you think you are because you're deserving to me. You mean something to me. He says this in verse 40, which is the very last verse that we read. It says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The crowd at Niagara Falls, they said they believed in Charles Blondin until it mattered, until they had to put their own trust and faith in someone, and it had to be a personal decision. And you know what they didn't believe in? Nobody volunteered. The crowd in our story today, same thing. They were given a choice to believe in the Savior of the world, to accept this gift of life, but they rejected him. This morning, we get a choice too. Jesus is opening up his arms saying, I'm giving you life. I'm offering you life. Come 
to me. I'm coming here to transform you, to take you from focusing so much on the earthly and moving into um, the eternal, the spiritual. We have this choice to walk away from the pain and the hurt and the suffering and everything of this world and go and say, Jesus, I'm going to look towards you. I'm going to focus on you. I'm going to reach out towards you. Maybe um, the choice this morning is whether or not to turn back to him. Maybe, you know, we've believed in Jesus and then we've just kind of stopped looking at him. Maybe we've kind of focused ourselves too much on the earthly things. Again, we're focused on work or social status or material things. And Jesus is saying, I'm reaching out towards you you too, that you are um, precious to me, that I want to give you this life. Come back to me. He's opening up his arms to us. So we're going to partake in communion this morning together. Um, And as we do, um, I want you to remember that Jesus' sacrifice is for everyone. It's every person in this room. It's not, you don't have to do anything to earn it, that Jesus is offering this freely to you. He made a way possible for us to be reconciled to him, to be connected forever, eternally with God, that our lives don't need to end when our lives end here on earth, but that we can continue to live forever in everlasting life with him. So we read a song, um, or we sang a song earlier in the service, and that was Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And um, this song really, as um, I was going through just studying these past couple weeks, I kept going back to that song because I feel like that is really what's showing um, what this is. It's that complete 180 degrees when we focus on the face of Jesus, when we focus on him. The things of earth it doesn't matter anymore. It goes behind us. It grows strangely dim. So I'm going to go ahead and read the words to us. So as, and you can read them too, um, just reflect on these. Think about them as I read them. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know, I'm convinced um, that God loves to hear from us. He loves to hear us pray to him. He loves to see us show up, to study his word, and to sing to him, to worship him. And so I think that there's something really beautiful in singing out to God and singing our testimony, singing where we're at. So if you would be um, willing, I want to go ahead and sing this together right before we take communion. And if this is where you're at this morning, if this is where you want to be, you want to turn your eyes back towards Jesus, go ahead and sing this with me. It's just going to be our voices.